Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 151, The Price. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log. John, let me stuff you right there. What if I propose a sort of uh, a cooperative arrangement for this week's show? One wherein uh, we look at an episode of Star Trek and examine it for messages, morals, and meanings, and figure out whether they apply today. Well, that's what we do every week, and and that's exactly what I was going to say. Now I know you're thinking. We do that all the time, and I was actually going to uh, going to suggest something like that. But I think you have to admit, John, that that, that the term I've negotiated here is um, well, it's better. I do. Um, okay, can we move on? You're welcome. This week, we're looking at the price. In a moment, John will be laying down some episode-specific trivia. But first, I want to let you know how you can get in touch with us. All right, Ken, while you do that, I'm going to go slip out of this uh, shiny spandex workout gear. I'll be right back. <laughs> uh, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. Uh, if you want to leave us a voicemail, you can call us 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Free when you call from a friend's house. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents and pictures and all kinds of things, is uh, missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. In fact, uh, you can leave comments on our website. Something that I forget because I don't go to our website that often. <laughs> I gotta do, do, be do you have an Do you have an internet, Ken? Do I have an internet? I'm thinking yeah. about getting me one of them internets. I hear they're okay, good. Yeah, I yeah, hear they're should. good. I got a thing in the mail the other day for a thousand hours free of internet. Ooh, nice! I know. So I'm really, yeah. I'm really excited. I'm just going to put that in my CD player, and uh, the mm-hmm. world will be my oyster. I think. <laughs> ha 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 ha! <laughs> <laughs> nice. And now, without further ado, it's time for trivia. With John Champion, and I apologize because that actually did add ado to the whole thing. Not much ado. Uh, no, no, not, 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 not much. All right, today's show, Ken, The Price, was written by Hannah Louise Shearer. Although, when she wrote it, it was called A Price Far Above Rupees. That was the original title. Um, now, we've talked about a number of uh, episodes that Shearer has had her hands in. She was executive story editor for a while. She wrote When the Bow Breaks and Pen Pals, among others. And she came back to write for some of Deep Space Nine. After writing Star Trek, she contributed a number of scripts to soap operas like Port Charles and Days of Our Lives. Today's episode is the last of her writing credits for Next Gen. It is uh, it is mm-hmm. so interesting to me that you say she went on to write soap operas because around my house it was noted uh, that uh, a, cu- a couple of the scenes were like, wow, this is like a nighttime soap. See, that's funny. That that might be a note that pops up uh, in today's episode later. Yes. yes you, never, you never know. Never know. Um, there are a few missing scenes in this episode. Uh, Troy conferring with Chief O'Brien, so we would have actually seen him in this episode. And uh, Troy conferring with Wesley. Poor kid wasn't allowed to stay up all night at a sleepover on the holodeck. Uh, it was directed by Robert Shearer. Not related. Those last names are spelled differently. And we've mentioned Robert Shearer before since he started on Next Gen with The Measure of a Man. His directing career started primarily with TV musical and variety type shows. Now, Ken, I know you've been dying to do this. Yep. Let's let's talk about quadrants. Okay. Okay. I, I, am I right in thinking that there are four of those? 
Very good. Okay. Very good. There would be four, four quadrants. Yeah, in a hole. Yeah. Now um, we are starting to get a little more detail in this episode about the idea that our galaxy, the Milky Way, can be divided into four parts, and the wormhole that we are concerned with here would be the shortcut to the Gamma Quadrant. Now, in Star Trek, you're drawing lines directly from galactic central point, and our solar system is right on the dividing line between Alpha and Beta Quadrants. And uh, this is where everybody from Star Trek we know already lives. So Orions, Vulcans, Romulans, Klingons, blah, blah, blah. And we also know now that the Borg are in the Delta Quadrant, uh, but hopefully we never see them again. Now, if you want to know more about the fictional quadrant system, you can look at Mike and Denise Okudo's Star Trek Encyclopedia. If in real life you want to figure out what all of this stuff is, well, we do actually divide the galaxy into four parts. Um, they aren't named by the Greek alphabet, but they are numbered one, two, three, and four. The center is actually our sun, since that's where our perspective comes from. And those four parts maybe aren't quite as evenly divided, but you can you can take a look at it and... Uh, and see what those quadrants are. Now, uh, some of the guest stars here worth mentioning. Ral is played by Matt McCoy. He's been around. He is well known for stints on Seinfeld, Carnival, West Wing, and movies like L.A. Confidential. He also has the distinction of appearing in two Police Academy movies. Those would be parts five and six when we didn't have Steve Gutenberg. Scott Thompson, not Thompson, Scott Thompson played Damon Goss. He has credits in some great cult titles like Johnny Dangerously and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And just to one-up Matt McCoy, he has appeared in multiple Police Academy movies. He was in three of them, uh, one, three, and four. So not not the same ones, though. Not the same ones. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You think they talked about it on the set? I hope they did. You know, there's plenty of Police Academy to go around, Ken. That's true. That's yeah. true. Just ask Bobcat Goldthwait. Uh-huh. Um, Kevin Peter Hall played Leor. He was originally considered for the roles of Data and Jordi LaForge. Now, he was six foot five and most famously played the Predator and also Harry and Harry and the Hendersons. And sadly, we lost him at the very young age of 35. And then uh, a couple of Ferengi to mention, Dan Shore as Arador and J.R. Quinones as Cole. Uh, Arador, uh, played by Shore, has a pretty extensive acting history. Quinones, not so much. Now, we will get to see Shore again, possibly, if we ever find out what happened in the Delta Quadrant. Love story and negotiation, plus, four beings enter, two beings leave. All of that and a foot massage too. Let us let John put it all in order. Prologue. It's been a long day and all Deanna Troy wants to do is sit in her quarters, eat chocolate ice cream, and get through all those letters from her mother. Then the call comes. Captain Picard would like to see her in the observation lounge along with the delegates who are visiting to witness the first known stable wormhole to the Gamma Quadrant. Troy reluctantly shows up where she meets Bavani from Barzan 2, Mendoza from the Federation, Leor from Caledonia. What makes his big head so hard? Well, we love him just the same. Finally, there's Devanoni Rall, a human representing the Chrysalians. He's Deanna's type of guy, and by the look of it, she's his type of woman. Oh, and uh, something, something wormhole. 
Act One. Now, why were we all here again? Oh, yeah, the wormhole. It's in Barzan territory, so Bhavani is on the Enterprise to entertain bids from those who would like to, what, own it, operate it, build a Stuckey's nearby. That's why the other guests are on board. And now who should want in on the action but a trio of Ferengi? So be it. They throw a bag of money on the table to stir things up. In her office, Deanna Troy is more interested in Googling Devanoni Rao. She needn't ask the computer much because he walks right in. He's all swagger and very forward charm. And yeah, Rao was traveling with someone else, but he must have grown tired of her because she's gone. Before she knows it, Deanna has her hair let down for her and a dinner date with a negotiator and his baby blues. Act 2, Riker, Picard, Data, and Mendoza discuss the value of the wormhole, and it is determined that they need to send a manned probe in to check it out. Only after careful study, though. There are still too many unknowns, and the whole thing could be a bust. Somewhere else on the Enterprise, the three Ferengi are hatching a plan. Dr. Arador is preparing a solution from Damon Goss's blood pyrocytes. When it comes into contact with human skin, that human will get really ill, and their target is Mendoza. Raul has a target as well, that dinner date with Deanna Troy, and it is off to a rollicking start. Really, Raul doesn't care about dinner at all, and he puts the moves on the counselor as soon as he's in the room. The Fringe plan has also worked all too well, and Mendoza is stumbling around in a delirious sweat. He's going to be out of it for a few days, so Riker has to take his place at the negotiating table, which is just like a poker table, only the prize is a giant wormhole that will shave off hundreds of years of travel time. Act 3, the wormhole has reappeared on schedule, and the two shuttles, one with Data and Jordi LaForge, and the other with Ferengi, Dr. Arador, and Cole, are in position to have a look. Communications work for a while, but then taper off to nothing. In the briefing room, Rahl and Riker are engaging in that old pastime of a smug-off. Hard to tell who will come out on top, but Rahl is clearly getting in his punches early. To Bavani, he makes an interesting case. The Chrysalians he represents have been at peace for ten generations. They don't have enemies the way the Federation does. Before Riker can get his rebuttal in, cut to Deanna Troy's left foot. Rahl wastes no time. He goes right from the negotiating table to the massage table, okay, it's bed, where he and Deanna have replicated every version of massage oil the computer can make. It's cool. She just had a pedicure. He's talking about staying for a while. They can have a little more alone time, get to know each other. She likes the sound of that. In fact, she can't really get a good read on Raul, and that intrigues her. He asks about Riker, but Deanna assures him that their relationship is over. As long as we're getting personal, Raul has a bomb to drop. He's empathic too, part Betazoid no less, but he doesn't tell anyone because that's his advantage in his job as a negotiator. The part about his mother being half Betazoid must not have come up in the Google search. Can we cut back to the wormhole before this gets really uncomfortable? Glad you asked. The two shuttle pods emerge from the other side of the wormhole, seemingly fine. Everything looks good where they are, wherever that is. Jordi and Data get with the whole exploring and seeking out thing, while the Ferengi just want to be left alone. Everything is cool, though, until Data crunches the numbers. They should be in the Gamma Quadrant, but they are definitely not. In fact, they're a couple hundred light years from where they should be, somewhere in the Delta Quadrant. That should be fine. Maybe some locals can point them home. Except that would take hundreds of years. 
And Jordy is starting to pick up some very odd subatomic and gravitational fluctuations with his visor. Act four. Now we have a scene where... You see, it's the next morning and... Okay, there's this room on the Enterprise with mirrors and... All right, Dr. Crusher and Deanna are doing aerobics. There's no music, no instructor. It's just these two in shiny workout gear having girl talk about Deanna's new love interest. And and then that scene ends. Uh, Devin Oni Rao is in 10-4, just casually chatting with the Caledonian representative, Leor. Raul would hate to see the Caledonians get in over their heads with doing all the administration of the wormhole. As quickly as that, Leor is ready to rescind his offer and drop out of the negotiations. A surprise to everyone except Raul, who is also glad to sweeten his own offer with the riches of the Caledonian world. Totally not suspicious at all, thinks everyone else in the room except Riker. Meanwhile, in the Delta Quadrant, Geordi is arguing with the Ferengi, who are just awfully stubborn about accepting new evidence. Geordi can see it. Data knows what's happening. The entrance to the wormhole to get them back is going to collapse, even though they can't see it. The Enterprise shuttle takes off just in time, but the Ferengi ship stays behind, and by then, it's too late. Even when the entrance reappears, it's gone again, leaving these two Ferengi stranded. After a hard day of manipulating the negotiations, Raul sits down for dinner. Yes, they are really eating dinner this time, using space forks and everything, with Deanna Troy. She's a little cool to him now. She realizes that he is using his power in a potentially unethical way, getting into the personal emotions of the others around him. Now, Rao challenges Troy that she's doing the same thing by providing information to her captain about the aliens they encounter all the time. None of this sits well as pleasant dinnertime conversation. Act 5. Back in 10 forward, man, this Rao guy really can't turn it off. He sits down with Riker, round three in the smug off, and now it gets personal. Raul knocks down Riker a peg by taking a shot at his position on the ship and his current standing with Deanna. Oh, sure, there is some business to discuss. Raul says he's ready to close the deal for the wormhole before the scouting mission even gets back. On the bridge, Worf alerts Captain Picard that the Ferengi ship is moving into position in front of the wormhole, opening and locking weapons. When hailed, Damon Goss explains that he just knows the Federation is cutting a secret deal with Bavani. Totally not true, but just because Goss is so sure, he's firing warheads into the wormhole. Now, just to make it super cool, Picard orders Worf to fire phasers at the Ferengi missile, and it blows up real good. This is the perfect opportunity for Raoul to bend Bavani's ear. Now, those two enter the bridge just as things are getting more tense, but Raoul steps in to address Damon Goss. In that brief moment, the Chrysalians have won the negotiation. But because he is so generous, Raoul will offer free passage for all Ferengi ships. All's well that ends, well, not until Deanna has said her piece. For all his smarts, Devanani Raoul seems to have forgotten that Deanna is still an empath. She senses that this whole thing is a lie. The Ferengi threat, the jumping up to save the day, it was all a sham. Now Deanna blows the lid off it. She reveals that Ryle is also an empath who has been manipulating the whole thing. This latest skirmish was theater to shake Pavani's faith in the Federation. Right on time, the Enterprise shuttle emerges, and Geordi reveals that the wormhole is a dry well. It's unstable at the other end. 
Damon Goss is alerted to set course for the Delta Quadrant to retrieve his men, and Ral is now the proud owner of a useless wormhole. He's still interested in Deanna, though. Before leaving the Enterprise, Ral makes his way to her quarters to say goodbye, but not before asking her to come with him. He realizes he's a man without a conscience, and he could really use someone who can make him a better person. And Deanna's like, uh, no thanks, I already have a job and I'm not surrounded by a bunch of morally bankrupt slime balls. At least that's how I heard it. The end. So you seem to have had a real problem with the workout scene. It's just really <laughs> bizarre, Ken. It's just I, really strange. I, with the exception for of, for about eight hundred. Yeah, yeah. There are a few. Strange. There are a few reasons yeah. it's bad. Again, talking about yeah. what was said in, in my household when that scene was watched, I, I believe what I heard from the other <laughs> end of the couch was, "Huh." <laughs> <laughs> And, and none when, of when Beverly was just there by herself. No, 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 no. Although, yeah, well, yeah. no, 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 not at all. Look, it's the future. All right. I mean, they they have future mm-hmm. workout togs. They have future uh, forks, as mm-hmm. you pointed out. There are future champagne yeah, glasses forks, that they're yeah. using. Yep, space mm-hmm. champagne glasses that they're using. Um, yeah. I kind of get why it's it's for the limber line. Mm-hmm. That's why they're working out during this. Why they're wearing yeah. what they're wearing, I can't say. And why we couldn't have that same you know discussion over morning coffee or morning yeah. tea, say, yeah, or something. Now, I will say it was neat to see girl talk. It was neat to see a relationship between um, uh, uh, the women on the show. doesn't even come close to surviving the Bechtel test, but that wasn't even a thing back then, so it's okay. No, no. And, and, and that's the thing. Yeah, okay, they're having girl talk, but but that's the other reason that the scene is uncomfortable. It's such girl talk. It, it's just like this sort of, you know, winking, oh, what did you do last night? Oh, I met a boy. You know, and it just, mm. uh, it, it, it comes across as sort of juvenile and weird and i'm not saying that they're not allowed to have fun and i'm not saying that they're not allowed to talk about sex because that's actually one of my positive notes in here yeah but um the whole thing just plays out as very awkward and and it is only hurt by the location and the outfits and and it's 1989 and everybody is letting their jane fonda workout tapes collect dust at this point i was gonna say it was good to see the 20 minute workout back on tv do you remember the 20 minute workout mm-hmm. you were a mm-hmm. teenage boy around the same time yeah, I was sure. a teenage boy you sure. remember the 20 minute workout of course I do. um yeah. here's the thing i you know if this was all they ever talked about if this was all they ever did i mean to me the talking about uh, the talking about boys because we actually do learn and maybe this should have come later i apologize i didn't think we were actually going to get into a big discussion about it we learn about beverly's relationship with jack crusher in that yeah. talk i yeah. like the fact that they're having you know, uh, uh, simple girl talk. I mean, these are not these are not simple girls. These are not simple women. These are not dumb women. But I like the fact that everything is not you know furrowed brow and can we save this person's life or furrowed brow and I think that guy's worried or, right, or lying right. or something like that. I like the fact that it was like, yeah, I totally got some last night. Yeah, and, <laughs> it was like, and, and that's the only part of it that I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm glad they're addressing this, but but the way it plays out, I, I oh man, it just makes me. It, it takes me out of the show. Yeah. You know? What takes really me out of the does. show is the outfits. If well, you, outfits if you did the hard. rest of that, yeah. if you did the rest of that in like a, in a more, um, in a less, um, <laughs> if you did that in a better, um, then I wouldn't have a problem. 
better everything. We need better everything, and then we'll have a better scene. Yeah, let's think it back to uh, to what uh, to what Tasha. Wow, is that her name? Tasha, yeah. Yeah, blonde woman, uh, yeah, yeah right, kind of right. tall, uh, kind of gruff. Behind the horseshoe. If we think about it, behind the horseshoe, that was actually that, that's her VH1 documentary. Uh-huh. Behind the horseshoe. Um, if we think about what she was wearing when she worked out, if, if it had been mm-hmm. like that kind of thing, of course they mm-hmm. weren't. They weren't doing martial arts. They were doing aerobics. And if twenty minute workout taught us anything, you have to be scantily clad to do aerobics. Please let's move on. I apologize. Yeah. I didn't mean okay. to get us that far into the into those weeds. But you know it was going to come up. I, I, I'm really curious if it actually is going to stay in the show. We'll find out. <laughs> right. All right. So back to the beginning. Um, I'm, I'm sympathetic to Dana's desire to stay in and not see the wormhole. Mm-hmm. Um, she will see it at some point. And remember, at whatever point she sees it, that will be her first time. Yeah. What a little kid Picard is, huh? I yeah, know. No, come yeah. on. We're all going to see the wormhole. We're all going to see the wormhole. I'll see you later. No, no, no. We're all going to see the wormhole. Come on. Get in here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was curious who this god was that she was talking about. Because oh, <laughs> she's like, God yeah. forbid I not see the wormhole. And I'm thinking, yeah. really? Which God is that? Is that the Betazoid yeah. God? Is that, are we calling on Thor at this point? Are we talking about the one true one that Kirk talked about? I'm a mm-hmm. little confused. I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with Val. I wonder, oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Although he wasn't, he, well, okay. Um, it, it actually, it, it, it calls to mind mm-hmm. um, some of the conversations in like, uh, in Star Trek Six. I think somebody else wrote to us recently about how how prejudice even our even our nice um, mm. even our nice sounding languages like you know inalienable rights and you know, all that stuff um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, human rights I believe they actually referred to it as as well I wonder if humanity is just like just lousy all over the enterprise now do you think or all over the galaxy excuse <laughs> me do you think there are Vulcans running around going God forbid I not be logical oh, that's right right, right. <laughs> right. Huh. well no I mean. It- <laughs> You're bringing up uh, what is a, a, a serious thing, and, and that's to say that, okay, well, with Troy, we, we don't know what her particular set of beliefs are. We can only infer things based on what we've seen around her and, and, and the discussion of people around her, and obviously her terrific monologuing in Who Watches the Watchers. But God forbid is sort of one of those terms. Wherever you fall on the spectrum of belief, you probably are familiar with and have used at one time the phrase god forbid much as one might say bless you even when they don't actually mean bless you they really mean gesundheit (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that's so hard to spell it is it is yeah Yeah. um now when picard requests troy to tend forward she says she's not dressed appropriately so so she's lying and and when Picard says, oh, any old thing, as one of our listeners points out, any old thing means a Starfleet or a Starfleet-ish uniform that she already has on. Uh, so that was kind of a, a fun little moment. Um, now, the wormhole, uh, luckily for us, makes an audible sound effect at the moment of its arrival that apparently yeah. travels through the vacuum of space and into the observation lounge. Very well- cool. Bear in mind, the computer just sort of shows you whatever it wants to show you. <laughs> I know. It, it make, might just play music it when it shows Making up. noise, too. Like, oh, that looks like that would make this kind of noise. <laughs> <laughs> right. I like the look of the wormhole. I like the look of the wormhole a lot. It actually it, it, cool. it played with my head a little bit because it's like, oh, they're flying into a sphere, but there's a hole in the middle of the sphere, but it can't be in the middle of the sphere because they're in it, and that's Wow. It's like the most infinite donut you've ever had. The most infinite donut. That might <laughs> that might give uh, the ultimate computer the ultimate computer a run for its money. The infinite donut. I like that. Yeah. Um, very very funny moment with the Ferengi one upping Picard to get his chair. Love that. 
It was yeah. actually, it, it, I, I was sad that that ended so quickly. And it probably was just the right amount of time, but I thought, oh, this Ferengi is funny. And then when they mm-hmm. have the whole thing with like the blood thing and they almost shake hands and they don't and they laugh and the sort of <laughs> snidely mm-hmm. whiplash, he wasn't funny the rest of the time, but just the whole, the preoccupation with chairs was hysterical, I thought. Right, right. Because it, it was one of those moments in Star Trek where you get to get, get away with a scene that is funny because of the characters, not funny because you're telling jokes. Yeah. You know, yeah, uh, it, it was just really, really good. I wonder if, if if comedy in Star Trek is so bad that when we that when we see those that we're like, oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Because I'm thinking right. about it now, I'm like, it's really not that funny. No. But comedy in Star Trek misses so often that yeah. when you get yeah. something that's even mildly funny, you're like, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. It, it was it was the delivery. It was delivered right. It was directed right. It was edited right. So the timing was, was yes, kind of yes, that. comedy latinum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm glad to know that there is still a Brussels in the future and that it's still part of a European alliance. Who knew? Maybe maybe they're still using the euro, even if everybody else has sworn off currency. Maybe so. Um, uh, another funny line, um, poker. Is that some sort of a game? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, nicely done. Nicely done. And, um, Ken, you know, it, at least we know that we have uh, Star Trek's first scene dedicated to foot fetishists in this show that's kind of uh, uh, an important milestone I think that we've reached um, go ahead <laughs> you didn't feel like they just lingered on that for a long time I, we're going to have the first we're going to have the first three minutes of dialogue just on this one shot <laughs> and that'll we'll just go on from there well it certainly shows a bit of intimacy I'll be honest what I thought of was uh, was uh, was the debate in Pulp Fiction mm-hmm mm-hmm and given a million yep. people a million foot massages and they all mean right. something. And so, you know, that whole that, that, that's actually where I got stuck. And that's why I'm saying please move on because either we get into an uncomfortable discussion or I just start cursing because did I mention Pulp Fiction? All I'm saying is just a, a, an odd and interesting choice for what is very valuable and precious broadcast time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you are not wrong. No. All right. Um, Jordy. Jordan yeah. in the in in the the gamma quadrant. It's not actually the gamma quadrant. I almost want to move this into the next segment, but uh, but mm-hmm. I but I don't. Yeah, why is he not concerned with the fact that they're not where they're supposed to be? Ken, let me posit to you that if you woke up on a raft in mm-hmm. the middle of the Pacific mm-hmm. and could not see land anywhere in sight, mm-hmm. you wouldn't just say like, "Oh, hey, um, I'm not where I'm supposed to be." Well, no, but let's <laughs> yeah. say I woke up in the Pacific mm-hmm. on a raft, mm-hmm. and there was an android next to me, and I, <laughs> and I was part of a science mission, and that uh-huh. android said, "Hey, science," and yeah. I'm and I'm an engineer, and mm-hmm. and this analogy is now getting really convoluted. Okay, I would think that I would say, "Well, that's that's weird." Mm-hmm. I mean, because what Jordy does is actually just explain it away. And Data's like, hey, we're not where we're supposed to be. And and, they, and Jordy's like, ah, well, maybe those other guys were wrong. Well, okay, maybe. Yeah, Should right. we not be a tiny bit concerned about this whole thing unraveling? I was kind of bothered by the fact that he, I mean, he said, never mind because this. And and I think it, it would have the whole thing would have been different if he had said, yeah, that is weird, and this. Because, I mean, suddenly you take Jordy from being um, engineering guy, scientist guy, to prop. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's one line and it's maybe it's dumb, except I was like, really? Jordy wouldn't care. Really? Jordy wouldn't care that they are literally light years away from where they're supposed to be. I would just be counting down the moments until I completely freak out and lose it and am in the fetal position in the back of the shuttle pod. Why? 
because, because you're not where you're supposed to be? Not, not only you're not where you're supposed to be, you are dozens of light years at, at high warp from where you're supposed to be. And, hey, you're in Borg territory. <laughs> Every time in, they in say territory, I want, to start doing like a, I want to start doing like a cheer. Like, this <laughs> is Barzan country. You, beware. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, and it was interesting that they could get a fix on where they are since they've never been there before. Well, you know, but but I guess you could do that. I mean, you know, light travels at the speed of light, and you could map things that are even farther away than you could actually get to in any reasonable, reasonable time frame. Yeah, but yeah. Plus, it, it, plus was, it was data doing it. I mean, it was data. Yeah. He can do like eight things at once, maybe at even nine. Yeah, at least. Um, and speaking of that, though, you know, they're stuck out there, but the but the Ferengi are really stuck out there. <laughs> they're stuck out there, like eighty years away at warp nine, mm-hmm. and and I guess the Ferengi just don't care too much about their own crew members, and, and from the look of it, neither should we, because um, it's sort of like. It's sort of like beaming the tribbles on board the Klingon ship. You know, you know, oh, look how clever I am, and here's a pat on the back for you for doing that. And it's sort of like, oh, yeah, just uh, tell Damon Goss he's got to head to the Gamma Quadrant, and he, he won't live to see his fellow crew members again. the story and trifling points aside, let us dig a bit deeper and see what we are getting for the price. Was it the uh, American Council on Beef <laughs> or the American Council on Pork? I think on, I think pork was America, you're leaning on pork, and pork was the other white meat. Mm. There, was, there was an ad campaign when we were kids, I think, um, yeah, uh, promoting beef. Uh, and the slogan was, I've got a taste for some real food. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't remember. Uh, I, I think it was beef. I'm not sure. Um, I found, the, I found uh, Deanna's uh, preoccupation with real food, with bad for her food, with fattening mm-hmm. food. Yeah, I found it interesting. Um, yeah. And the computer's like, well, no, because that's bad for you. And I'm put together to give you things that are only good for you. But, says the computer, I, you, you can override that if you want to. And, 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 and now I get really confused. If the replicator can give her an identical tasting facsimile, what is the difference? It, it sort of goes to the synthahol question uh, that we've talked about as well. It's like, oh, it tastes like it and it'll get you drunk, but you can shake it off. And then there are sometimes, like when the bring came onto the Enterprise, they're like, ah, I don't want your synthahol. I want something that's actually going to kill my brain cells, not just make me <laughs> feel like it's going to kill my brain cells. And Troy's like, I want something that's really going to make me fat. I want something that's really going to, you know, do that as opposed to pretend do that. Yeah. Um, see also climbing actual mountains versus playing in the holodeck and, you know, dating a real guy or gal versus, um, <laughs> well, versus playing in the holodeck, I guess would be the way to put it. Well, you know, the thing that I found interesting about it was that I, I guess I, I was trying to build up this justification for it in my mind and to say that, okay, there is something different. I mean, e- even if we had the technology today where where you could say, okay, here's here's this food that you love. Here, here's a chocolate sundae that you love. And a real chocolate sundae is really not that good for you. But, you know, we eat it anyway because we love the way it tastes. But now here's the synthetic version that tastes almost like that. It's really, really close. But you can tell the difference. Like, yeah, you sort of get that chocolate taste. 
but it's not exactly the same. And maybe it doesn't fire off those endorphins in your brain when you eat it. See, so you're, you're not getting that satisfaction from it. That's interesting to me because you're assuming that it only tastes almost as good. I'm wondering if it's just the knowledge. I'm wondering if it's mm -hmm. just knowing that it's not real. And then I'm wondering, too, mm -hmm. so if the computer can go ahead and make real, I mean, no, it can't. <laughs> because the computer is still making it. The replicator is still replicating it, right? Right, right. I don't think that there is a cow somewhere on the Enterprise where, that they're milking, you know, in case somebody wants actual cream in their coffee as opposed to the replicated cream in their coffee or if right, somebody right. wants real ice cream as opposed to the replicated ice cream. It just struck me as, it just struck me as kind of, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting question around... <sighs> Well, I mean, we've talked about it before. We've talked about it with the holodeck. We've talked about it with, uh, you know, when 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 Crusher went skiing, when young Wesley Crusher went skiing on the mm -hmm. holodeck, or when or when um, Riker fell in love with Minuet mm -hmm. on the holodeck, or when Jordy fell in love with Leah Brahms on the holodeck. Yeah. It 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 the idea of 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 seeming real and being real are, are sort of two different things. I mean, there was no there was no um, holodeck as far as we know when Kirk was climbing El Capitan in Star right. Trek V. Right. Um, would he ever have been satisfied on the holodeck? Probably not, but why not? If it can give you all the sensations, and yet, you know, the answer is because it's there and the one on the holodeck isn't. You could beam him into the holodeck simulation of El Capitan and he wouldn't even know it. That's true. But, but then he might be very disappointed when you turn off the simulation. That's true. But yeah. I, so then the other question is, so uh, Troy says, I want real. I want real. I want real. And the computer's like, right. eh, it's bad for you, but I can do it if you want me to. And then Troy's right. like, yeah, do it. And so then the computer gives her the same Sunday it would have and says, oh, no, <laughs> there you go. There's the real one. And yes, this is bad for you. And have at well, you know, that's kind of a funny thing. The idea that maybe in the 24th century, particularly if you're on a ship in the middle of nowhere and all you've got is a bunch of replicators, mm -hmm. that, that the baseline understanding of what food is has changed drastically. So if all the replicator is doing is just going to the same vat of recipes with the same building blocks and turning out, if you order a porterhouse steak or a chocolate sundae or nine lobsters, nutritionally, they're all the same. And maybe they're not quite as good as the same thing, but you don't know because that's all you've had is that stuff. Somebody might bring you a real steak or a real sundae or a real lobster, and you have no idea what that thing is because it tastes totally you know, different from the replicator you used to. There are kids, I feel certain, who have no idea what cherry tastes like. Oh, sure, yeah. Today. Yeah. Because cherry is that red color that goes into candy. Right. And it, it, it bears no resemblance to the flavor of an actual cherry, but it's now recognized as, oh, that's cherry. Oh, cherry mm -hmm, Coke. Mm -hmm. Well, it tastes like cherry. Well, no. It tastes like whatever that red stuff is that you put in there. Yeah. I know this feels like a weird thing to get caught on, but I actually found it, I found it just a just a fascinating idea the whole idea of you know uh, real versus imagined and the value of the real as opposed to the value of just the experience whether it's quote real unquote mm -hmm. or not but we can probably yeah. we can probably uh, mosey on from there there was one other thing that i found interesting and maybe it's because of where i live mm -hmm. niagara falls usa is a beautiful place um if you're talking about the park if you're talking about that side of the falls but niagara falls the city is in Niagara Falls, USA, the city is kind of sorted, just kind of a little bit starting to come back. Hmm. 
a little bit of money is coming in there every now and then. There's like a, I think there's a new Rainforest Cafe on the American side as we record this, and uh, there is a casino. And then there's just a bunch of crap. There's a mall that used to be something, but it's closed now. And there's a there's a there's a museum that used to be something, but it's closed now. I mean, and and I mean no offense to anybody who lives there. If anybody who lives there is listening, you got the makings of a great city next to one of the seven wonders of the natural world today. Well, it would be if Niagara Falls had actually gotten off its stuff and submitted that to the committee that decides what the wonders of the natural <laughs> world are. And that is a true story. They never wow. got around to doing it, and that's why it's not considered one of the wonders of the world today. Here's the thing. Niagara Falls is dead largely because the people who are sitting on it don't have the money to develop it, but they're convinced that someday somebody's going to come along and do something. And every time somebody comes along and does something, there's a lot of corruption that has to be dealt with, and then they have to um, – it's just, it's, it's just a bad scene, and I don't know what's going to make it better. My my hope, honestly, is that Disney will buy the whole town one day <laughs> and do something with it just so it can be an okay place to go. Yeah. I say all of that because the bars on trading the one thing that they have going for them, I, mm-hmm. I find it interesting and I find it laudable, honestly. I mm-hmm. mean, this is not like I'm going to sell everything for $5. I mean, this is not giving up Manhattan, right? This is saying, look, we've got this thing that's going to be very valuable for you. It's very valuable for us too, but here's the problem. We do not have the money to develop it. We don't have the resources to develop it. We don't have the technology to develop it, but we'll give you rights to it. Because apparently they do have the technology to, I don't know, make life difficult for people who would actually, you know, <laughs> right, try to develop right. it. Because it's weird that they like, a, you know, we can't actually deal with this thing that we have. Well, then you don't really have it as much as, I don't know, I do with my gunships, say. <laughs> but I like the fact that they're that they're willing to go, look, this is a thing that, that is insanely valuable to somebody. And we just can't do it. So let's talk about how this can be a mutually beneficial thing for both of us. And I guess the only reason that that actually really interested me is because I can drive right now to a place where the people who own what's around there are not doing that. And and right. it's an absolute disrepair and it's terrible. And I could go over stats on uh, visitation to Niagara Falls, U.S. versus Niagara Falls, Canada, but that would bore everybody, including myself. Um, I just found it fascinating that I, I, I sort of like the idea that they were that they were an advanced enough people to go – yeah, this would be really beneficial. So let's talk about how this can be beneficial to everyone, ourselves included. I thought that was an interesting idea, but I kept wondering, well, how far away is the wormhole from the Barzan homeworld? Yeah. And when do they get to lay claim to that? Yeah. You, you know, at some point, when does it become international waters? And you just sort of, well, if you're, if you're here, just play by the rules of the road. But yeah. there's not actually a toll to pay to go in there until you actually land somewhere. Um, but yeah, I, I, I get exactly what you're saying. I mean, it, it does sound like an interesting idea that they would have ownership of it in the first place, but then do something smart with it. Um, that at least we can hope. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still say stuckies. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, last pecan log until the Gamma Quadrant. Um, Deanna Troy, recording Terrell is a little bit like Riker. Uh, work is her life. And uh, what what is she like when she leaves the office? This was an, an interesting line of thought to, to start, of, start going down. But then I really turned to hate that scene with him shushing her. And tossing her hair, he pulls the the comb out from her hair, and then it becomes free and loose. And and I know it's TV, 
And I know that you're trying to condense this love affair down into boy meets girl. They have this thing. And then by the end, we got to get rid of them because it is still a TV show. Um, and all of that has to happen in 45 minutes. But um, it, it really felt uncomfortable, uh, even for a smarmy guy like Raw. Well, it did until you until you find out that he's Betazoid. I mean, I honestly yeah, sure. thought I thought that he was doing some sort of mind control thing on everybody. Mm-hmm. But being Betazoid... Well, being Betazoid, theoretically, he can read her uh, emotional state. So, like, the first time she sees him, right, Mm -hmm. we can all see. But he can definitely feel that, you know, she's really into him. And so every move he makes at that point, he's going to be reading her tells. or her. Well, actually, her emotional state. It's not even her tells. Mm -hmm. He's going to be reading her emotional state. So I was actually I was I was really offended by it the first time I watched it, and then once I found out he was Betazoid, I was like, okay, well, he he basically is getting permission mm. by her by her emotional reaction. He moves a little bit closer, she gets more excited. He moves a little bit closer, she gets more excited. He pretty much knows every step that he's making is going to be accepted because he's because he's reading it off her the whole time. Yeah. Now, if he, if it had been a mind control thing, that would be different. But I mean, you know. I didn't like the scene anyway. I still don't like it. I mean, he still is smarmy, but I, but I, I, I came off my hatred for the scene because I mean, once we find out that he, you know, that he's basically reading every sign. I mean, it's practically a roadmap. He knows that what he's doing is going to not only be fine with her, but is going to be something that she is going to, you know, like and enjoy and welcome. Then I'm kind of like, well, it still could have been shot better. It could have been written in a more interesting way, but. He didn't do anything wrong. It, it, it's his eyes, man. It's blue steel. Yeah, once once he flashes blue steel. Oh, baby blues. Geez, you you know. were talking about his eyes. I didn't uh-huh. know. I didn't know what you were talking about with that. So. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I was not talking about barbecue. <clears throat> um, okay. Was, yeah. 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 For once. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, but, but yeah, no, I, I get what you mean. There is that line where he says, am I moving too fast for you? And she says, no, I'm moving too fast for me. Yeah. Um, which, which, again, is a, he should be able to read that conflict because, well, he's reading her mind and uh and back off at some point well Um, that that goes to the whole question of affairs of the heart though i mean you know people do stupid things sometimes and you say you know before or after or during this is madness this is crazy but you go ahead and do it because you know it's also um fun you're on your way to toe curling time exactly yeah, right right yeah. Uh, dr crusher says that who yeah. needs rational when your toes curl up okay so we we brought up that the aerobic scene because just as a scene it's awkward the way it's shot it's <laughs> yes, awkward it the way it is styled it is awkward this is not one of star trek's finest moments but but the the gist of the conversation and their openness with the conversation is i think what is interesting and important about it yeah uh they're because owning. It, they're owning their sexuality in this. Uh, in this. Uh, in that scene, they are. They yeah. are. There, there is zero judgment from anybody about anything that Deanna Troy is doing, and Deanna Troy is just all smiles and hey, that was that was a good time. And I don't know what it means, but whatever it means doesn't matter right now. Yeah, and there are a couple of layers too where you could have some judgment. Okay, so she slept with somebody last night, and Crusher's like, hey, that's kind of awesome. She's like, do you think you can fall in love with somebody in one day? And Crusher says, "Oh yeah, I did." And she's like, "Oh, that's that's how you you fell in love with your husband in one day." And she's like, "No, <laughs> I fell in love with some other guy one day, and it lasted a week, but it was an awesome week. And then I met my husband. You know, whatever. I mean, there's right. there are lots of levels where this is just 
hey, we're, we're you know, it's 24th century. We're sexual beings and we're fine with that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I love the, the attitude of the scene and I, and I love the point that it is trying to make. Now, we've talked about sexuality a few times on this show and when Star Trek hits and when it misses. But here's an indication about what the attitude is about sex in the 24th century. So for that, <laughs> yes, I was waiting for that moment to give it a thumbs up. But everything yeah. else about that scene. Yeah. Absolutely painful. Yeah, uh, tor- <laughs> torpedoed by the twenty-minute workout wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, right. There's right, actually right. there's there are many problems with those outfits. There are many problems with those outfits. Just it, it'll be a whole other show. It, you know, it could be. It would, let's do a supplemental. Right. <laughs> Blackwell's. <laughs> who wore it worse? Okay. Um, so now let's talk about the big scene with uh, Raul and Deanna because mm-hmm. the, there we had. Uh, a really interesting back and forth about the the ethics of using their abilities. And I thought this was one of the more interesting scenes here. So, Rell says the point of negotiating is to take advantage. And he's right. Riker is doing the same thing. He's looking for an in to take advantage to present his best case. Um, and Rell, you know, trying to justify using his power during that negotiation, we 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 kind of saw it happen in a more benevolent way with Riva in Loud as a Whisper and and a, another bit of a romance with Deanna too. So Deanna falls for these uh, very sensitive guys mm-hmm. and, and sensitive in more ways than one. So then the question is, is he acting unethically or is just is it just something that he is good at that makes him a good negotiator? So as he says, Picard uses Troy in a similar way consensually I mean Troy is not just she's not enslaved by the Enterprise but Troy is there to do that job for Picard um, so the guy's got a point mm-hmm. well I, I agree in fact um, I was going to ask you what do you make of his you know the whole thing with her look you get a problem you go to talk to Counselor Troy Counselor Troy you know is a betazoid you know that she is able to read your emotional you know output mm-hmm. on some level this is different when than when they come across you know some ship somewhere and Troy's standing there over on the side going yeah that guy's lying or yeah, yeah that guy's telling the truth or yeah that guy's hiding something mm-hmm. um i i liked the 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 challenge of whether or not what she's doing there is ethical now of course we're going to decide that it is because she's keeping the enterprise safe and she's giving the enterprise an advantage and certainly you would say, well, in business dealings, what that guy is doing is unethical. But isn't unethical unethical? I mean, she's well, she's she's hiding an ability that she has when – because, I mean, when, when the Enterprise comes across some other ship, it's a negotiation. It's not a negotiation for land, as Rawl said. It's a negotiation – well, he says when you do it, it's life and death. Only sometimes. I mean, yeah. it's not always life and death. So, I mean, is that is that where you – is that where you pull out that stop? Or, you know, does it actually make sense that the Betazoids have not been hunted to extinction by everybody else who doesn't like how smug they are? Yeah. Or how much they know about them? It's, 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 it, I don't know. I've, I found his questioning um, interesting. And, of course, you could also say his questioning is just him being defensive. Well, it, it's a really nice gray area to play in. I mean, I, I thought about it this way. Okay, let, let's pick something kind of benevolent. You know, you, you go – or not, not benevolent, but benign. Mm-hmm. You go into an office and you're about to have a big business meeting, maybe a, a job interview or, or whatever the case may be. 
But you go into the office and you look around the person's office and you see, okay, there's pictures of the kids and uh, there's the family at Disneyland and there's a pennant from uh, the, the, the Dodgers or whatever. And you're putting together this picture in your head of how to connect with this other person on an emotional, personal level. Mm-hmm. So, so you are picking up those cues. And, and maybe there are emotional cues as well that you pick up. Is this person in a bad mood? Are they in a good mood? Do they like to laugh? Do they like to stay kind of all business? So you're building this sort of narrative in your head to make yourself fit into that narrative. Mm-hmm. And that's something we do all day, every day with everybody that we encounter. Now, the flip side of that, and the really nasty, ugly side of that is I thought about psychics, you know, people who are, whether they know it or not, whether they are deluded or they are active charlatans um, who are simply picking up human cues from other, what does this person want? What are they concerned about? What do they believe? Blah, blah, blah. And then spinning that back into stories to take advantage um, and that advantage might be as simple as just getting money and making that person come back for their fix of, of hearing the stories they want to hear or eventually leading them down a really terrible path to make some terrible life decisions. So then that becomes the, the unethical model of that to me. Um, and, and somewhere in between, like I said, there's the, the kind of gray area of when does it actually become a line where instead of just doing what we all do every day, become something kind of kind of nasty. So yeah, Raul I Raul has so many other unappealing traits <laughs> that, <laughs> that it's very hard to side with him in anything. But I think what he says at the very least gives Deanna pause. Now up until this point we have pretty much just seen Deanna show up on the bridge and go, oh Ferengi, they're probably lying. Romulan, probably hiding something. And yeah. we all go like, oh hey, thanks. Deanna, um, <laughs> wow, your powers are remarkable. You know, yeah. There's here's here's the one thing that I would say is different than what you're talking about. We're given to understand that the Betazoid are born with this, mm-hmm. you know, sort of ability to read emotion, and that is different. I mean, because what you're talking about, you walk in, you see the Disney picture, you see the pennant, you see you know pictures of the kids. Mm-hmm. These are all things that are being put out there by people. Um, there are some mm-hmm. people who are really good at reading. Uh, people's uh, body language and, and hearing tones of their voice. I mean, really, really good. And Raul even yeah. talks about them, too. He's like, people have been doing this for hundreds of years, so what I'm doing is just a little bit better than that. Well, yeah. no. I mean, because cause what you're talking about is, so you see the Disney, you see the, you see the Dodgers pennant, you see the Disney pick, you can tell something about this person, Southern California, he's got a family thing, maybe he likes pastimes, or he enjoys, you know, he enjoys sort of getting away and doing these things, and reading a guy's diary. I mean that's yeah, that that's yeah. sort of the difference. I mean he's we're given to understand the Betazoid don't have this finely honed skill. They have this almost magical ability. Witness the fact that Rawl is the only one of the five kids in his family, yeah. the only the only one of the his four siblings and himself who actually has um who actually has the empathic ability. So it's not that that's that's where it's not the same thing. And yet still I found his his questioning about um his questioning Deanna's uh, activities interesting. I do have to. I do have to say there is one place that I side with Rawl. Mm-hmm. I know you said it's hard to side with the guy because he's so, uh, you know, slimy. Um, yeah. Go big or go home. I love mm-hmm. that. I love that, and I don't always live that way. But golly, I would <laughs> like to. You know, um, his whole thing with uh, was I guess it was with uh, Riker that he said it right. Yeah, he's like, yeah, I'll make the big play. 
I'll, I'll absolutely, are, are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to do whatever it takes to win here? I am. And I, and, yeah, and, and second command. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, it, it does get <laughs> personal. It does get icky. And, and, um, you know, that's, yeah. that's sort of, but I do like, uh, I, I like the, I like the thing. And I do like the fact too, that he, um, you know, follows it up. So when he screws up, right, he mm-hmm. goes big. He's like, yeah, look. I know we don't know whether this wormhole is stable. I know we don't know for sure where it ends up on the other side, but you've told me what you think it is. And that's a big enough deal that I'm going to go ahead and here's everything. And I'm even going to screw other people and I'm going to, you know, and I'm going to mess up the only chance I have for real happiness with the woman that I love. Maybe, maybe not. It's tough to say. I'm going to go ahead and, and throw down on this deal. And then the deal like goes south mm-hmm. and Riker's all smug and Raul's like, I bet big. All right. Yeah. So I'll 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 live up to this. Now it's kind of funny that he says he's going to live up to his bargain because you know it's actually the uh, whoever it was <laughs> that he was negotiating <laughs> for. I don't think he's going to be on that planet from now on, developing all their resources and giving them <laughs> all the stuff that he said. I mean, he says, "Well, I stand by what I said." Well, okay, you're backed by a whole government that's going to have to stand by what you said. Well, I was about to say it's really easy to do when you're playing with somebody else's money. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I still you like know? I still like the whole. I I I appreciated the go big or go home thing. Well, see, this is why I sort of wondered about that very last scene, because mm. Raul Raul is in it for the game, and, and now I wanted to see Deanna deck him at the end, mm-hmm. and you know I didn't want to see the tender goodbye, you know, any of that stuff, because what he's asking for is just gross you know but his last appeal to Deanna um, about coming with him and oh I need a conscience because I'm a horrible person mm-hmm. yes okay yeah, that's the first most truthful thing that you said um, but I wondered is it just trying to win a last one over Riker so he lost well he didn't lose the deal he won the deal but what he won was worthless mm-hmm. you know um but that conversation in 10 Ford where he's basically telling Riker, like, look, I'm so much better than you. Not only will I win this deal for the Crusalians, I will also win your girl. And you can sit here and tell me that she's not your girl, but I know that she's your girl and I'm going to take her away. And Riker's got a pretty good comeback to that. But is Raul reading that Riker still has some feelings for her? And that last goodbye is just like, man, I can beam off of this ship. And not only have I won the worthless deal, but I've also won this little heady personal thing mm. with Riker as well. For some reason, I didn't think so. Mm. I, I I actually took most most of what most of these people said at face value, with the exception of Rawl, a lot of times. But I'm not mm. sure. That, I'm not sure that Rawl wasn't in love with Troy. Honestly, um, I, 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 I do believe he... I do believe Riker when he says, "If you can make her happy, you would make me happy." Because I think I yeah. think there is a certain I think there's a feeling of failing in that relationship. I think he loves Troy. I think he loves mm-hmm. the Enterprise more right now. Sure. Maybe this sure. will change one day. We can't really say for certain. Right. But I, I, I really do I, I've I've always believed that what he wants most for her is what's best for her. And maybe yeah. it's just because that's you know, that's just what was written down. I think that Rawl honestly, you know, I think he knows that he is bereft of character. I don't think he's cared to this point. I think he spent so much time hiding the fact that he was an empath that that he hasn't really that he hasn't really been concerned with that. And I think he comes to a place where he where he knows he's bereft of character, but he doesn't know what to do. What he asks of Troy is pathetic. 
But, yeah. but I mean, we've yeah. seen it before too. Not, I don't mean on Star Trek. I just mean in life. I mean, you could, you complete me. You make me want to be a better man. <laughs> these are these are lines from big Hollywood movies that people are like, oh, that's so wonderful. Well, no, be no. a better man. Tell yeah. you what, be a better yeah. person, and then you know, I mean, <laughs> turning to somebody expecting them to save you. It's romantic. It makes for good novels. Um, that makes for okay novels, but it's it's a pretty horrible basis of a relationship. Um, and yet, I don't know. I I I I believed that he saw this one. Well, Riker even says it to him. Riker says, "You know, she could be the best thing in your life if you're smart enough to take it." And I'll bet you're not. And I think he does sort of see that, but by that time he's he's screwed it up to such an extent, and he's not offering her anything. He's just like, "Hey, let's live together, and you can make me a better person." <laughs> this does that sound great? <laughs> but no, that that's the thing. He does he have genuine emotions for her? Sure, probably. I'll I'll give him that. But this is a totally that relationship he describes would be a totally one sided thing. And what I'm saying would he also get away with getting another one up on Riker? Yeah, there there might be just a tiny part of him that still has yeah, that satisfaction. I disagree. I don't think I don't think there's anything personal. I don't think there's anything personal between what's going on in, between him and Riker. I don't think he cares. He he won the negotiation. That's what he was concerned about. And now he's got the rest of his life to think about. And that's why he goes back and talks to Troy. Riker's off the table at this point. They've walked away from the table at this point. It's all done. There was nothing personal between them, I don't think. It was, well, not to, not to be too godfather about it, but it was strictly business. <laughs> Time now for the end of the show showdown. Bottom line, is the price right? Well, John, I know you have ways that you like to do things, but I'd like to I'd like to offer you a proposition. What do you say for this part of the show? We sum it up. We talk about what the messages and morals and yeah, you know, the meanings are and whether or not the whole episode stands the test of time. Now, I know you're thinking that's such a radical approach, mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. it the way we always do it. But how would you feel about going that way? I, I'm going to do exactly that, Ken. And uh, and don't think for a moment that you've won. Well, no, let, um, me, let me sweeten the deal. For, oh, oh, you, you're going to do it. Okay, never mind. I'm going to do it. Yeah, go ahead. Go that. ahead. Right. Uh, messages, morals and meanings. Let's start with the uh, let's start with the one that we always start with. Uh, does this episode actually hold up? Okay, so there are a lot of ways to try to answer that question. Um, from a production design angle, not really. Some terribly dated artwork and costuming and hair and and all the trappings of Star Trek. Um, I would even say that like the shuttle pod effects are not among the finest that we have seen uh, in Star Trek. Um, and it feels like a scene like shooting a missile at the wormhole and then blowing that up with a phaser was really just an excuse to have some space action in mm-hmm. the episode. You know, yeah. well, let's see, boy, we're we're running out of time here. We better blow something up. Uh, let's do it, you know. Um, we from, need something for the preview. Yeah, right. <laughs> we need exactly. something for the ad. Because otherwise it's just a bunch of people standing around going, so you want to? I don't know. Or, do you want to? It's just Deanna's left foot. <laughs> <for the> entire <laughs> preview just with voiceover. <laughs> Next time on Star Trek, Deanna's left foot. Um, okay, uh, from a story point of view, well, I, it's... 
it's really not all that interesting or dramatic. Now, now, true, we do get some good character development stuff out of Deanna, but in the end, what's that worth? Because this guy goes away, and then, as far as I know, we never speak of him again. So it all kind of feels inconsequential. And it feels very soap opera-ish, mm-hmm. the way the relationship plays out. And that's why, yeah, we go back to Hannah Louis Shear, who moves on to do soap operas. Um, I, I'm not opposed to the setup here, and I'm not opposed to the idea of exploring this part of Deanna. They, uh, all the, the building blocks feel like they're there, but it just doesn't add up. How about you? Yeah, I would say the same thing. The one thing that I was surprised about was how quickly. This episode actually is fairly fast-moving, um, mm-hmm. but it goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of kind of a drag. I mean, yes, there are some interesting things that we've been able to pull out and talk about, but there's not no <laughs> it's it's i mean it's fine it's like i don't know it's it's like eating um replicated cotton candy <laughs> it's, wow it's fine and it's not going to do you any damage but it doesn't move anything along i mean we've except we're demoting the ferengi again we're actually, yeah, or right. I, I don't want to say demoting. I'm sorry. We're changing the Ferengi again. When they first came on, they were these like weird, almost feral creatures that were supposed to be the big bad guy on Star Trek. And then, of course, they one of them captured Picard and 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 nearly drove him insane because of a slight that he felt uh, had happened however many decades ago. Mm-hmm. And and we're getting more to the Ferengi that <clears throat> crossing the timeline. We're getting more to the Ferengi that we're going to come to know. We're getting more to the always trying to get the advantage, always trying to, you know, get the upper hand, whatever. But this is just going to be happening with the Ferengi from now on. So even this is not really um, revelatory. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I mean, it just, it, it kind of doesn't, which is, which is a drag because we've just, you know, we've come off hit after hit after hit over the last few weeks. Yeah, and right, I right. saw this one and I was like, oh... Oh, well. <laughs> but but we had a good, nice, long, meaty discussion. Uh, so what what do we get to pull from that? Messages, morals, meanings? A- a- certainly an ethical conversation. But but what else? Mm. But I, it's it, I know it's crazy how into this I am. But I'm 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 really into the go big or go home message. It reminded me of what I've said about Worf. I know a lot of people uh, listening to this, and I know you've also said, yeah, Worf is very Klingon. He's sort of like, he's more Klingon than Klingons actually are. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't think I would ascribe the way Worf behaves to his Klingonness. I would ascribe the way Worf behaves to being Worf. And maybe it has to do with being an orphan and having lost, you know, in the past. And so he is aware that that you know beings are mortal and so he he just you know makes a decision boom he does that mm-hmm. um i don't think it has so much to do with his being klingon as much as it has to do with his being who he is um and to that end i really i like i like the fact that uh, what's his name that rawl will put it all on the table that he'll yeah, that he'll bet big um i i wish i did that more i think i used to do that more honestly I can't tell you how many times I quit a job without another job when I was younger because I was like, yeah, I could just stay in this job forever and I shouldn't stay in this job forever. I should get another one. So what I'm going to do is go in and give my notice and hopefully in the next two weeks I'll find a better job or a different job yeah. or one that I want. And that's, that's, yeah. sort of a, that's sort of a go big or go home thing. And so I think maybe for some reason that's why that appeals to me. It's also possible that I'm looking for something to really like in this episode and, and that <laughs> happens to resonate with me as well. What about you? Messages that you saw, things that you... Uh... Well, 
See, I, I, I kind of I, I take what you say about go big or go home, and and yeah, that's a positive thing, and that's the thing that holds up. Oh, it's also Sometimes. a potentially stupid thing. Don't get me wrong. Well, we'll I mean, see, and, and that's where I think I have the problem is because to me, Rawl is the guy who who just fights to win, and and what I want to say is. Yeah, but you should win for principle. I mean, Riker calls it. He says Ral has no values, and the guy doesn't. Um, he he's just he will win whatever. It doesn't if it's a wormhole, if it's latinum, if it's whatever. He just wants to win for the sake of winning. And mm-hmm. if it's Diana, he just wants to win for the sake of winning and and take her as well. Um, See, now, my, my suggestion, really quickly though, don't hate the player, hate the game. And that may sound crazy, but don't hate the player, hate the game. I well, was, but he, was, he is creating that game. No, he, he's not. He's not creating the game. He is a negotiator. The guy at Mendoza says, "Ah, yes, Rawl, one of my yeah. best hired guns." He actually, he actually says Mendoza, who is there to negotiate. Apparently, the only reason Mendoza is there to negotiate is because Rawl was already negotiating for these other people. I mean, right, right. Mendoza says this guy's the best at what he does. So this is not a game that Rawl has created. This is a game. This is a game that exists. I was I was talking to somebody the other day about a case that's going on right now as we record this. And it doesn't matter when it's happening because it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. There is a person uh, in the city where I currently live who has been accused of rape. Mm-hmm. And the defense attorney is doing what defense attorneys do, blaming the victim, setting yeah. up in people's mind that maybe she did something to make this happen. And I hate that person. And I hate the fact that we do that. It's the game. And it's a terrible, terrible, awful thing that we're doing. But then you want me to villainize Rawl, and I'm kind of like, he, he, is, he is doing his job in this situation. And we happen to live in a system where it sucks and it's terrible, but that person is going to be victimized because we have all of these jobs that have to be done in our justice system, and, and that's one of the jobs that has to be done in the justice system. You try to win. You don't cheat to win, but you try to win. And that's, I mean, it, so, I don't know. That feels well, it, that feels like sort of like a way off on the corner thing, except I was thinking about both of them. Rawl is acting what you and I would consider unethically, except this is the situation in which they are all working. And if Rawl weren't there doing it, somebody else might. I mean, certainly the Ferengi, the Ferengi actually cheated. Yeah, right. I mean, they right. actually cheated. They didn't just, well, although maybe we're all cheated as well because nobody knows that he's psychic even though he is. I don't yeah, know, though. I, I mean, I can't, I mean, it's it's his job. It, it, but here's the thing. Okay, it, yes, we, we can and we have had a debate as to where those ethical lines are, you know, cheating or not based on what Raul is doing. Mm-hmm. It, the thing that I see that's distasteful about Rawl is that Rawl doesn't turn it off when he is away from the negotiating table. Yeah, that's the job, and the job is horrible. Um, and, and and he thrives on it because, of course, he can read it like a poker game, and, and he knows what to do. Mm-hmm. But Rawl doesn't know how to turn that off when he's away. He would rather just win over Riker because he can win over Riker. He'd rather yeah. knock Riker down a peg about being second in command <laughs> Because he can. You're assuming you know? that. I, I disagree. I don't, I don't think they're ever away from the negotiating table until yeah, it's so, over, yeah. when it's yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Riker then comes up. Riker is the one who can't walk away from the table. Well, congratulations on your big win. Yeah. And Rawls like, dude, we're, we're done. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. I'm not at work now. 
I'm now standing on your ship where you're second in command. And good job, by the way. It must be hard to be second in command on a ship like this. I mean, the game is over at that point. He's no longer playing. Riker's the one who's still caught in what they're doing. It's really weird to me. I know it sounds like I'm very... I'm almost like an apologist for Rawl, and I don't know why... Yeah, you need to stop that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think he's more multifaceted than you think. I mean, so uh, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Because you really seem hung up on the whole, you know, he's just trying to get it over on Riker thing. I didn't read that in what was being said there. Am, am I misreading something, or was it bad writing that didn't indicate that, or what was it exactly? Because no, I once- mean, I, I, I think it's writing that is perfectly open to our various interpretations of what's going on. And that's fine. Okay. okay. That's fine. I mean, you know, here's the thing. We, we both agree that Rawl is kind of a disgusting figure. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. I'm um, there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for different reasons though. For, I, for different reasons. Yeah. I think he's, I think he's just, I think he's just a sad, pathetic, no emotional life kind of guy because he spent so long hiding from what he is and who he is. He's Betazoid. Mm-hmm. Oh, well tell you what, I'm going to leave this planet and go lie about what I am and who I am someplace else because I find it very difficult to deal with, you know, who I am and what I am. And, 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 and so that, becomes, that gives him zero, like, emotional anything, zero yeah. emotional platform. He's basically just uh, he's going through life working angles at that point. And that's why I think he's disgusting. It feels to me like, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. you're actually seeing something more intentionally nefarious in what he's doing. No, I, I don't think it's intentionally nefarious. I, I think that it's he he is unable to get away from this this mode in which he has lived his life. Okay, where, yes. As Riker says, he, he is valueless and and he he doesn't have a set of ethics or morals that he lives by. So whether it's at the negotiating table doing his job or in his personal life, he would rather just be the guy who wins and moves on to the next thing. So again, that, that last thing with Deanna is just like, oh, okay, hey, well, I'm done here, so I'm going to take you and you're going to fix me and you know it's yeah. like whoa the, the, no you you are gross you are disgusting you are scum see this okay you say rather though and i think that's where i'm getting stuck on it mm. i don't know that he would rather i think what he actually would rather is be a better person i think what he would rather is be with deanna i think he's got the emotional development of a 14 year old he, he can say that he'd like to be a better person, but but like you said, it's like, okay, you want to be a better person? Be a better person. You've had 41 years now to try to be a better person, but instead you live in this world where you have no values, no ethics, and and you, you're a jerk, <laughs> you know? Yeah. All right. I don't – Yeah. well, okay. Yes. <laughs> I, two two other minor minor things I just want to hit on b- before we uh, we wrap it up here is to say that I, I think that those are the interesting messages that we can kind of uh, tossle back and forth here. Um, but there is an interesting statement we talked about before about sexuality in the twenty fourth century. We've mentioned how there aren't fraternization rules on Star Trek in this office place that is the Enterprise, and it seems to work out okay. I mean, in this one, nobody really bats an eye that Deanna has a very sudden relationship with somebody that nobody knows, you know. (laughs) Um, um, Maybe she let the relationship blind her from her work responsibilities at some point. But, of course, it's 45 minutes. So at the end, she's going to kind of come back from that problem and uh, and save things there. And uh, and this whole thing shows off, like we said before, that kind of self-possessed 
sexual agency on her part. Um, the, the, the ending of which is, you know, sadly, <laughs> it goes badly for her. Um, you know, at least we get rid of Rawl, but, uh, but that, man, that last conversation is just painful. Um, why would Deanna even welcome him back for the heartfelt goodbye? And then he just goes into full-on creep mode again. So, um, yeah, that, that left kind of a bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, but, you know, the idea that we also explore relationship and character in this, I, I thought was a valuable thing to do, even if we still say it's not a great episode. And it's not a great episode. No. I, I would say. Did we answer whether the messages actually hold up? Well, I think the the two ideas there that we have that well, do ideas about uh, sexual agency and being self possessed and uh, and non judgmental. Sure, that that we we should have gotten to that point by now in our human history. Yeah. Um, the idea of going bigger, going home. Sure, that's a valuable thing to uh, to keep in the back of your mind. And I would still say, you know, don't just fight to win. Win for principle. I would hope that that would. Uh, that that would stand up to. But but here's the thing, Ken, I, I don't believe that the Rawls of the world will hear that message. Maybe and I not. hope I don't run into the Rawls of the world. Yeah, I, I, I hope you don't, too. Well, well, here's what I'll say. Mm-hmm. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Find out more at roddenberry.com and uh, find out even more than that. Yeah, just go and explore because there's tons of stuff to see. Uh, for more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out uh, Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. And we'll be back next week, and we'll be back with The Vengeance Factor. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Runners-up in the bars on wormhole negotiations will receive a year's supply of rice-a-roni. Rice-a-roni. The Starfleet Academy Treat. And transmission. <laughs>